0: Yeah, well, um, okay, it, it, uh, it's simple and not profound at all, but maybe that's why it's interesting that um, I was born into a Lutheran family, and they were very happy as Lutherans, and uh, so there's a, uh, on my father's side, there's a strong German influence, and which would, might make Lutheranism uh, more, you know, uh, acceptable. Uh, and, and then I was uh, carted off to church, and um, and I sat there and was, like, really confused about the Christian perspective. Uh, I couldn't hear it clearly, and I couldn't read it at all, probably because it was King James Version. And and it made absolutely no sense to me. But it did create fear, which is one of the things that I suppose religion does. So I can remember, you know, uh, before I went to sleep, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die. Before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I was a young lad, and I had only just arrived. And already I'm talking about dying and, and, <laughs> and, and hoping that my soul, which is a concept that I never really got, would go someplace. You know, um, and and so there was that aspect of it. It was, and if you read uh, the Psalms or any of the Old Testament, uh, uh, God was a cruel master. If you didn't do what he wanted you to do, he'd kill your firstborn. And you just go, whoa, and then of course Jesus came along and it went from that to love. And that was cool too, but I never knew what love was. I couldn't figure out love. I mean, the, people love their shoes, they love their cars, they love their wife, they love their kids. And, and the feeling I had was those were all different kinds of love, but we used one word to describe all those different kinds. And so I just was really confused. And there wasn't much about regular people. There was like the God and the Son of God and then all the other people who just didn't really do a good job of being people. And, and so around high school, I decided to become an agnostic. I decided because it was in the 1960s, uh, uh, and, and it was really cool to question authority and not trust anyone over 30. <laughs> and so I sort of, you know, took up the banner and said, okay, you know, I'm not going to believe anything just because people tell me it's true. And which is really good when you get older, but not so good when you're young because people have to tell you what's true to give you a reference point for you to decide later in life. Okay, so it, everything worked well. I was pretty much a, a secular humanist. Um, I, I knew right from wrong. Uh, I was Republican for a while. I was a member of the NRA for a while. Oh, Yeah. And, and then I started to watch PBS. And then I started to give away my polyester flower shirts and buy cotton. And then I gave away my hair blower and hairspray and went sort of natural. And and I eventually evolved into a Democrat, which was really cool. But then I had to commit myself to, to that. And, and there were a lot of things I didn't really agree with. And so then I became an independent. And so then... It, Opens everything up for me. So, uh, so happily, I evolved into an independent. But I learned a lot along the way, being in all those other places and talking to all those other people and seeing the way they related to the world. Um, then I turned 30, which was uh, just a, a traumatic experience because Logan's Run was one of my favorite movies. And if you ever watch that movie, everybody's implanted with a crystal in the palm of their hand. And when they turn 30, it starts to blink. <laughs> and, and then they come and find you, you see. And then you have to participate in this sort of game-like thing where you're, everybody gets killed. So there's only young people in this, in this society community, and everybody over 30 is dead. And so now I'm 30, um, and so I'm thinking I'll be dead soon. And I don't have a religion, and people that have a religion seem to die better than people that don't. So I should get a religion. It was all very practical. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wasn't divinely inspired in any way. It was just, you know, I live, I'm going to die, I should die as well as I can. So I bought this book by Houston Smith, Religions of the World. And I read the chapters, and I read the Buddhist chapter twice, and I said, I'm going to be a Buddhist. Because what it talked about is how to be a good human being. And that's all I ever aspired to. I didn't want to be the son of God. I didn't want to be an angel. I didn't want to be a saint. I just wanted to be sort of be a good human being. And Buddhism seemed to give me some really good models to look at. The Buddha and Ananda and Mahakashapa and all sorts of cool people who actually became perfect human beings, which is a definition of nirvana, becoming a perfect human being. So I began my uh, study of Buddhism by going to the Yellow Pages and looking for a meditation center. That was long, long ago, <laughs> and I found one, which is now which is where I live. So I, I've been going to this particular center that I've lived at for 20 years. I've been going there since 1979, and it really hasn't changed a whole lot. Uh, the people have, but the center is pretty much the same. And I began the practice of meditation, which was really uncomfortable and uncalled for, I thought to myself. Because you sat there quietly and just suffered, you know. And, and I didn't have any techniques or knowledge to go any deeper than that. So I just sat there and suffered. And then in reading the Dharma, I, I came to understand that the first noble truth is life is ultimately unsatisfactory. It's filled with great suffering. So once a week I got to experience the first noble truth. And then the rest of my life was great. You know, I never looked at my life as being bad or uncomfortable. I always thought my life was just the best life until I became a Buddhist. And then I looked at my life in a much different way. I looked at all the past lifetimes I may have lived and had to die. I looked at all the times that greed, hatred and delusion had been the driving force in my personality and not kindness or compassion, you know, or wisdom. And I, and I started to see myself in a much different way. And, of course, ironically, with Buddhism, when you start to see yourself, you come to a place where there's no self to see, which just gets you into a really interesting mindset. So I, I continue to go and meditate because every... Wednesday after the meditation, one of the monks would give a dharma talk, and I really enjoyed the dharma talks. And I didn't, I hated to meditate, but it was the price I paid to listen to the dharma talk. (laughs) And and I said to myself at one point that I wanted to see the world the way they did, because one time in an evening class, he spoke about being able to see the walls of the zendo as being transparent. And, and I, I took it sort of literally because one of my favorite shows was Superman and he could break through the walls. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I had the x-ray vision he did and I could see through the walls just like the monks could see through the walls? But of course that wasn't what they were talking about. Um, so it took me a long time to sort of figure out you know, the, their jargon because every tradition and, and a lot of careers as well, you have to learn the vocabulary. To understand what they're talking about. So it took me a long time to sort of understand the vocabulary of Buddhism to get a handle on, on the practical side and not the sort of mystical, schmistical side. I, I didn't have um, the innate intelligence to sit down and read the Dharma. I, I didn't have the background, I didn't have the vocabulary, and I didn't have the life experience. So what I would do is I would read books by people who had gone on meditation retreats or who had become monks. And then they would share their understanding and their knowledge. And that was my knowledge and my understanding, because I wasn't able to go any further than that. Um, But I continued to meditate, and I continued to read these commentaries from people who had, had done what I was doing. And then I started to go into the actual commentaries of the Dharma. So this is, this is like there's a sutra, and then a bunch of monks in the old days sat down and wrote what they thought the sutra meant. So I would read the, I would read the commentaries, and that would allow me then to see what the sutra meant, at least according to them. And, and that, and that, and that sufficed for quite a while, and then I got to the point where I just simply wanted to read the sutras without the commentary. I wanted to apply my practice and, and my understanding to the Dharma and see what I came up with. Which is the ultimate goal of all of this because this becomes our refuge, this becomes our raft across the sea of samsara, birth and death, and, and, and it has to be yours ultimately. You can't use anybody else's raft. So, it started to make more and more sense and I was able to understand it, but I wasn't able to talk about it. Because there's something that needs to occur mentally before you're able to share what you've learned. So people would ask me questions, and, and I knew the answers, and I'd start to talk, and I'd just end up stopping because I couldn't go any further. And, and that was fascinating, and, I, and you can hear it sometimes when you listen to people speak about something they're familiar with but really don't know. And, and they're enthusiastic, and they have a few keywords, and then they get stuck. And, and then you want to help them, but you can't because you don't know what the heck they're talking about either. <laughs> so after a, a few years of trying to get the stuff out, it finally happened. That I was able to get the stuff in, and then I was able to get the stuff out. And, and the first time I was able to get the stuff out, I was at an interfaith conference in Illinois and I was with uh, Catholics and Protestants and I was like the only Buddhist there, the only non-person of the book. And, and, and so I was up and I was going to give a talk about something and I got up and I started to talk and it just came out really easily. And I wasn't quite sure what I said, but it was it was well-received, and I felt that was good enough. And I had worried and fretted over this for days. L- lack of sleep, you know, perspiration, what am I going to say? And and once I was able to sort of step aside, theoretically, and and let it happen, it worked fine. But every time I wanted to take control or take credit, then it was like putting the brakes on, and everything would come to a screeching halt. So that was a, 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 my first real experience of this sort of transcendence of, of speaking a religion that you've now made your own, that you have integrated to the point that it has changed you, you no longer change it. Now you've got to work with that. Uh, and so, I, you know, people kept calling me, and, and they still do, and... Um, they asked me to do things, you know, like, can you volunteer at the state prison? Well, I don't really know what to do at the state prison. Thankfully, I've never gone there because I've something I've done. And, and are there Buddhists in prison, you know? Because like all the stuff I've read led me to believe we didn't go there. Kindness, compassion, wisdom, a lot of Buddhists in prison, not very kind, not very compassionate, pretty dumb. So I started to go, and I started to go, not because I could give anything to them, but because they could give something to me. They could show me how, how a variety of people have lived a life that have, has come to a sort of uncomfortable conclusion at this point. So I went up there and, and started to talk to the prisoners and stuff, and they were all really nice guys. You know, I couldn't even imagine why they would be there. Some of them killed their whole family. But in the moment I was speaking to him, he was a nice guy. And, and it started to dawn on me that, that oftentimes, you know, it's this one moment in our life. We can be like really good for 50 years. And then there's like one moment where we just sort of forget and do something really stupid and we pay the price the rest of our life. And like a lot of these guys had just had that one moment where if they could have taken 10 deep breaths or just, you know, done something different, gone out and got a cup of coffee, they wouldn't be there. So that was a fascinating insight for me that that it's it's not what we've done, but it's what we're doing today that really counts. This is the day that will decide the rest of our life. So it's a pretty heavy day, and those people at Pilgrim Place know that. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> so, so then I, I went to a juvenile hall for five years, and I was teaching there, and I was teaching the young people. And what I liked about the young people is, is I saw that they had a chance. A lot of the older people had gotten into a place that would be really hard to change. That, that you can't teach old dogs new tricks sometimes applies to humans as well. And, and what it is that these are habit patterns that we've built up over a lifetime. And to break those habit patterns takes a considerable amount of energy and insight. And most people aren't willing to invest in that in order to break free from it. You know, so, uh, and, and you can't talk anybody into it, you can't explain anybody into it, you just sort of say, well, okay. So, I, the, the kids, they had a few bad moments, and, and because of, you know, environment, neighborhood, family, friends, you know, there's all sorts of reasons Uh and, and yet they had hundreds of volunteers going to juvenile hall, giving them optional ways to live, lawyers and teachers and artists and actors, and and they would uh, share their experience of life, their career path, and, and hopefully give these young people, both men and women, an idea of some of the possibilities that life holds for them if they're willing to change the way they look at life. So it, it, was, it was great. I really enjoyed that. And 11 years at UCLA, it was fascinating. I really started to understand the politics of universities more than I ever wanted to. Um, um, but the students who would come to the Dharma class every Tuesday for years were not Buddhists, but they were interested in yoga or tai chi or martial arts or meditation, and they wanted to see what the Buddhist guy had to say and things like that. So it, for me, that was really exciting because it, it showed there are alternate ways of being in the world that attract people who are on a career path, who are spending tens of thousands of dollars to be somebody, and yet all these other technologies are there to help you be nobody. It's just the opposite of the direction they're going in. So, so Ram Ramdas, one of my favorite teachers, um, at one point in a talk said, you know, when you're under 30, you're in somebody training. And when you're over 30, you start to go into nobody training. Because the only person that dies well is nobody. It's really hard for somebody to die because you've got a lot invested in being that person. And you have to let go of everything forever when you die. And, and most people uh, feel a little resistance to that. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Myself included. So what this meditation practice can do for some people is allow them to die for a half hour. Because for that half hour, you're sitting down and you're letting go of everything you're supposed to be doing. You're letting go of all the thoughts that have, you know, crowded into your consciousness during the day. And, and you're just going to either watch your breath or do a mantra or, or sit like a frog on a rock. You're just going to be there and just let nothing interfere with the present moment experience of your life. So how do you die for a half hour? That's the question. And so meditation can help you understand the possibility of dying for a half hour and the practical value as well of dying for a half hour. Then you get up off the cushion, you go into the world, we find chaos, no order, and then we go back to the cushion. And and there's no order on the cushion either. What you have on the cushion is the ability to let go of everything for a half hour. So you things are arising, you're letting it go. Things are, are old thoughts, feelings, physical sensations are arising. You're in the process of letting go moment by moment, not getting caught or attached or having aversion to anything that's occurring in that half hour of meditation, which is a lifelong pursuit because every time you sit down to meditate, it's always the first time. There's no progress in meditation, and there's no progress in life either, though we are deluded into thinking that's the case. What we have in life is the first time, every time, that's similar to all the other times that were the first time. Does that make any sense at all? Okay. Okay. So, you know, as, as I get older, my memory isn't quite as sharp and clear as it used to be, especially when it comes to people. So people come up and say, hey, I listened to you give a Dharma talk 10 years ago, and it was wonderful. Do you remember me? And, and, and I haven't got a clue. And I, I'm honest enough to say, you know, I haven't got a clue who you are, but it's really nice to meet you again for the first time. And then they feel a little more comfortable. But, but that's how my life is becoming now. I'm meeting everybody again for the first time without all the baggage of remembering who they were, what they did, why I like or don't like them. <laughs> it's just... So it's not a bad thing to be in the present moment. It's, it can be useful. It can allow us to, to feel sort of stabilized because in this one moment, what we find ourselves doing is not getting attached to the change within the moment, that, that everything is in a constant state of flux and change, according to Buddhism. And it's pleasant and unpleasant at exactly the same time. There are certain things we just love and want to hold on to that we can't, and there are a lot of things we dislike and don't want to be around, and we can't do much about that either. But we know, given enough time, the bad things will go away, and unfortunately the good things will change into something maybe even better. We don't know. We just might settle for the, the present moment as being the best moment we're ever going to have. And one of my favorite things to say at Leisure World to all the old people is, this is going to be the best day you're ever going to have. It's all downhill from now on. You know? And, and I'm old too, and there's a, mo- a certain amount of truth in that statement, that this may be the best day I'm ever going to have in the rest of my life. So why should I wait for something better to happen? Why not just appreciate the perfection of the moment I find myself in and get a cup of coffee? You know, it doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be life-changing. It can simply be a recognition, a simple momentary awareness, a reference point that you can use as you venture into this world of ever-changing possibilities and realizations. So UCLA. Then for seven years, I was with the police department in Garden Grove as a ride-along police chaplain. I had a bulletproof vest and I had a uniform that said chaplain on it, chaplain on the hat, chaplain on the jacket, chaplain on the shirt. And I often thought to myself, the reason I have chaplain all over me is because they're going to shoot me last, <laughs> uh, thinking I'm one of the good guys. You know? <laughs> but thankfully, none of that happened, so it was okay. But I. It was amazing to ride along with these guys, because you you can imagine, you know, everybody is a little uncomfortable sometimes with around police officers and stuff. So what I would do is I would go there, and I would say, I'm here to do a ride along, and they'd assign me to a car. Now, the guy normally rides alone. So now for 12 hours, they got me sitting next to him. And and the first thought that comes to my mind is, what are we going to talk about? We're going to be in this car for 12 hours, two feet away from each other, you know, and we're going to be going on calls together, and we're going to be integrating into the community, and and the primary role of a police officer is, is this, to remind people how to live together. It breaks down to that. Oftentimes people forget. They're a little too selfish, a little too aggressive, a little too independent, for the community that they're living in. And the police officer rolls up and says, Hey, I'm here to remind you. This is what you need to do. And here's your ticket. <laughs> this, is your, this is your reminder. It's going to cost you $75. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, they're not out to get people. They're out to remind people. The harmony, living together, which is next to impossible. Because we're also independent in America. Other parts of the world, Asia in particular, Central America, South America, whole generations live together. You know, 15, 20 people in the same house. Somehow they, they don't kill each other. They share dishes and, and cars and clothes and, and it all sort of works out. Here, our ideal of the perfect American lifestyle is to live alone on top of a hill with cameras and a big fence and just do what we want to do. Whatever that means to you, it does not lead to happiness or, or fulfillment. And, and I have lived in a communal setting at the meditation center now for over 20 years. And, and what I have found is this. When you don't get to p- pick the people you live next to, it's up to you to adjust, to let go of how they're supposed to be and, and figure out how they are. Now, imagine you have a gem tumbler. And these are c- cylinders that go over and over, round and round and round, and you put all these rocks in there. And they're jagged edges and things, you know. And after rubbing up against each other, For hours, if not days, they get smooth and shiny and beautiful. And that's what happens to people that live with other people, is they start out all jagged and sort of ugly, and then they get this sort of smooth and shiny and brilliant and desirable, you see. And and for some reason, it seems to me, we forgot that. You know, we just, we want to do it our way. So... The police department was an eye-opener. Very courageous men and women. They they don't know if they're going back. They don't know if they're going to go home that night, if they're going to be in the hospital, or be dead. Because it's a pretty violent place out there. But every day they get in that car. I do it, you know, I did it once a month, thinking that, while well, Buddha is protecting me. Nothing's going to happen to me. So, you know, and it worked fine. <laughs> <laughs> so then... Then um, I, I, a hospital, uh, UCLA Medical Center. I'm now um, um, on the spiritual care committee at Cedars-Sinai Hospital. And I give didactics, which is a fancy word for talks, to the new chaplains on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. And, and that is, is probably one of the most difficult things for me to do because I don't like to be around sick and dying people because it reminds me of what's going to happen to me. And, and, and there's not much you can say that's going to help them feel less sick or less dying. There, you, there's no words of wisdom that are going to be applicable to any situation. And on top of all that, no matter how many books you've read or how many patients you've gone to see, each patient is the first time you've ever seen a patient. And they're only a first time in that day because the next day you go back, It's another person in the bed. And now you have to reintroduce yourself again. You know, they might be better or they might be worse. But they're not going to stay the same. There's a story I tell about a... I was giving a a presentation to chaplains at City of Hope. And, And City of Hope is exactly that. It's the last hope a lot of these people have to get well. And there was a woman in her 20s who was dying... And she only had a few months to go. And she was living in a room with her mom, who had a cot in the corner. And she asked if she could see me because she had some questions about Buddhism. Well, I was in my presentation state of mind, which is what I'm in now. So I'm, I'm big. I, I, I go into the room and fill it up. I have stories. I have, you know, I mean, it's... And, and none of those things are useful when you're dying, you know. So I walk into the room, and it took my breath away. And what took my breath away was this. I walked into a room that had no future and no past. There was nothing you could say about anything other than what's happening right now. And, and so all the past and future I had that I took into the room fell away. And it took my breath away. So I'm talking to this woman, and I'm explaining the differences in Buddhism, and and I'm thinking afterwards, she didn't want to hear the differences of Buddhism. She wanted to hear how Buddhism could help her. And and I realized that uh, what I needed to do after the fact was to go in and have nothing to say. And listen to her guide me in the direction necessary for me to interact and create a relationship that I could go in and dominate the situation and know exactly what I thought was appropriate or not appropriate, but it had nothing to do with her. So it was really quite an experience to, to be with a dying person and, and to, to sort of die with them, if you will. Uh, but it takes a lot of practice to do that. Now, I take care of cats. I have, uh, at one point we had 13 feral cats, uh, but since then, they've died. And they always die. You, you know, they never live long enough uh, 10 years, 12 years. Uh, but the last one that died, little Leo, he was really afraid to die. And he would cry. And, and so I would pet him. And, and he, he'd lived outside since he'd been with us for about two years. And so I brought him into my room at the center. And I got some trash bags and put it on my bed. And I put a towel over the trash bags. And that's where little Leo spent the last three days of his life. I know, it's so sad. He died Christmas morning, about 12, 1215 or so, and, and the Pope was giving his Christmas talk on TV, and little Leo died while the Pope was talking. It, it, it reminded, it, it, it sort of inspired me in a way, and I thought that maybe little Leo was part Catholic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. So he had a good exit. I mean, he was calm and relaxed. He had the Pope talking to him. He was in a Buddhist guy's room. I mean, you know, we should all be so lucky to end our life that way. So, So now the question is, well, after all these experiences and after all this trial and error and after all the meditation and reading, what do you do? How do you use that in your everyday life? Well, hopefully, at some point, it becomes just what you do. You don't necessarily think about it all the time. You don't necessarily think about it. If I'm wearing the robes and I'm not in my civilian clothes, um, then I no longer am part of this world. And people will not accept me as part of this world. I will always be the other. Which is fine because it forces me then to look at the world as the other and, and, and I need to have sort of a higher, uh, I, I need to have a higher bar, if you will. For instance, I'm walking by a newsstand and there's a picture of Jennifer Lopez on the front of a magazine. Now I'm wearing my robes, I can't look at that. Maybe out of the side of my eye, but I walk right straight ahead. <laughs> you know? Because it's not appropriate for me to get involved in that kind of thought even on the street in front of a newsstand. I, I need to be focused and I need to realize the world is suffering and I'll be dead soon. And off I go. You know, uh, now if I'm wearing my civilian clothes, I have a little more latitude, <laughs> you know. But it's, it's fascinating to, to take on the role of the other and find yourself in different situations. Um, when I'm doing interfaith work and I'm on a panel, Uh, I am always the other. I am the only non-theist sitting at the table. And to be a non-theist and listen to seven people talk about God requires great patience. (laughs) Because they're talking about the same God in seven different ways. Mm. And I get to stand up and not have to. I get to talk about humans and, and trial and error and suffering and no suffering and perfection and, and, and so it, it allows me to, to perhaps just create a space where now the seven panelists have to find a way to include me. Even though I'm not a person of the book, I'll never be their brother or sister, I'll never say the word God in the way they do, uh, and mine gods have, all have small G's with S's behind them so so how do you include this guy and and I think the best way to include him is to ask him what kind of virtue do you have what, what what's your moral practice do you have a practice that allows you to live with with people who don't see the world in the same way you do And and actually we do. We have something called the five precepts. You may have read about those five precepts. So it's not to take life, not to take what is not given, not to indulge in sexual misconduct, not to speak unskillfully, not to consume intoxicants. That practice allows us to live next door to anybody. And they don't have to fear us if they realize or understand we're practicing those five precepts. And I would go so far as to say, if the world would just practice those five precepts for one day, this would be a much different place to live in. So we practice those five precepts because that's what we do when we become an official Buddhist. We take the three refuges and the five precepts. The three refuges are, I take refuge in the Buddha as a teacher, Someone through his own effort, wisdom, and compassion found the answer to suffering and for 45 years taught the path to the end of suffering. So people say, what is Buddhism all about? It's only about two things. It's about why we suffer as a human and how to end that suffering as a human. We don't talk about the beginning of the world, though we do have a sutra about that. We don't talk about the end of the world. We don't talk about God. Sometimes we talk about heaven because people die and they want to know where they're going to go. But it's really just about why we suffer as human beings and how to end that suffering. So we take refuge in this teacher we call the Buddha. The word Buddha means one who is awake. It gives us an idea that in order for us to end our suffering, we need to wake up. It's hard to wake up. It is hard to wake up. Uh, even once, like this morning, uh, You I know, <laughs> uh, woke up. Now the idea is to wake up twice in one day. You see, and that just takes a lot of lifetimes of practice to get there. We take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, because that's our prescription to the end of our suffering. We sometimes call the Buddha the great physician. He saw the open wound of suffering. He diagnosed the cause. He found the cure. And to each and every Buddhist in the world, he wrote out the prescription that we follow to end our suffering. And then we take refuge in the Sangha. We take refuge in the, in the Sangha on earth, but we also take refuge in the Arya Sangha. These are the Sangha members, the monks and nuns who have achieved nirvana. So they, they would be the greatest members of the Sangha. And then there's the rest of us who are working on getting, becoming Arya Sangha. So we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. We take the five precepts and then we begin. Now practice is really an important thing. So, so we don't have commandments, we don't have sin, um, we don't really have evil, though oftentimes the Protestant translators in the early 1900s used the word evil a lot. What we have is unskillful activity, speech, action, and mind, that leads to more suffering, not less. Uh, I received an email from somebody asking me about justice. He looked at the world and he said, I don't see any justice in the world. And I said, well, Buddhists don't either. We don't have justice in Buddhism. And why don't we have justice in Buddhism? Because we have karma. We have the cause and consequence of skillful and unskillful, more suffering and less suffering. And in order to have justice, you need a divine lawgiver to define for you what is right and what is wrong. And when it's wrong, he will punish you. And when it's right, he will praise you. So in in our model, uh, we, you know, um, uh, if you want justice, if, you, if you're if really into the, you know, death penalty, incarceration, that's human justice, that's secular justice, that's societal justice. Um, but, but karma, running its course, will take care of every unskillful activity sooner or later. It's just we want it now. We want it now. So... In practicing, what we say is this: you know, I'm going to practice, and I'm and I'm not perfect, and I'm not a Buddha yet. And one day that practice will turn into realization. But until then, it's just practice. Does anybody play musical instrument here? Really, not. What kind? What do you play? I sing. You sing. So you're the instrument. So you practice singing. I do. And then sometimes it turns into performance when you're in front of people. Okay, perfect. So that's what practice is. Practice is, is consciously going in a certain direction. And performance is unconsciously letting it happen. You move out of the way and it just sort of goes by itself. How cool is that? And it's really cool, but sometimes it takes years of practice in order for performance to, to, to happen. And it's the same with Buddhism. Years of practice until performance happens, until the first thought is not greed, it's generosity. The first thought is not hatred, it's, it's love and kindness. The first thought is not deluded, it's wisdom. And that takes a long time. So we continue to practice, and and we fail miserably most of the time, and then we just say, I'm going to keep practicing, because one day this practice will turn into performance, and that means we have woken up, But we will not be Buddhas, there's only one Buddha at a time, we'll be Arahants. Now let me specify the three levels of nirvana, the three kinds of nirvana. The first kind of nirvana is the Buddha. What's remarkable about Siddhartha is after many lifetimes as a Bodhisattva, according to early Buddhism, in his life as Siddhartha, at the age of 35, he became a Buddha through his own practice, through his own effort, wisdom, and compassion. And then he was able to teach for 45 years what he did. See, he never told you what you're supposed to do. He told you what he did and then left it up to you to decide if you wanted to do that or not. There are, there's a category of people who have achieved nirvana that are called pacheka Buddhas or Silent Buddhas. These are people who, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Wiccan, have achieved nirvana. They don't know how they did it. They don't know why it happened to them, and they can't explain it. But they are there. So they walk around in their nirvana and probably wondering what the hell happened. You know? (laughs) You know? Then there's the third category of nirvana person, and that would be the arahant. The arahant is someone who hears the teachings of the Buddha, creates a practice, and achieves nirvana doing what the Buddha did. And, and so that is um, what most Buddhists aspire to. Most Buddhists are not silent Buddhas. There's only one Buddha at a time on earth, The next Buddha has already been identified. When the last person who knows the teachings of this Buddha dies, Maitreya Buddha who is now in Tusita heaven will be reborn on earth and start the wheel of Dharma turning again. So far on earth we've had 28 Buddhas. Siddhartha is the 28th Buddha. Okay. Somebody want to ask a question? Because this is like a lot of stuff. Do you know when you'll
1: achieve
0: nirvana? No, that's the frustrating part. You know, it's like, do I know when I'll play the guitar really well? No, I don't know. But if I continue to do it, one day it'll happen. I just, hopefully, I'll be able to enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) Could that be in another lifetime? It could be in another lifetime, and more than likely, it will be. I don't foresee it in this lifetime. Um, The Buddha, uh, Siddhartha, according to the Jataka tales, lived at least 550 lifetimes as a Bodhisattva before his final birth as Siddhartha. So it's really a many-lifetime proposition. I do not remember how many lifetimes I've been practicing Buddhism. This seems like the first one to me. And so I can't say with any kind of authority that I'm getting close And most people who know me would say, he's very far away. But it keeps you humble, you know? I I, I know one person who thinks he's enlightened. You
1: know? So. So what changed from your struggling through meditation and that sort of thing um, to make you want...
0: Was there an aha moment where you said, I'm... No, I, I wish there was. It would be a much better story. But it was just simply day after day, week after week, month after month, of sitting and reading and thinking and blah, blah, blah. So it was a gradual evolution of, of my consciousness, literally, of, of my consciousness. And, and, I, and I was probably the least aware person of what was happening to me. Other people would look at me and think something's up, you know. And, and, but I would look in the mirror and see the same guy every day. So I guess that's how it sort of works. We're sort of blinded to ourselves.
1: So you were living in the secular world, basically. I was
0: working and living and had girlfriends. and you'd go to the meditation center? I would go to the meditation center once a week and meditate. I would read books. You know, before Amazon, you had to go out to actually bookstores. There was Bodhi Tree Bookstore on Melrose, and I would go there. And I had uh, uh, wonderful books, wonderful library. And it always gave me a chance to look at the world a little differently. When I read those books. And uh, so it started to change the way I perceived myself in the world. Yeah. But it was very gradual and almost, and pretty much hidden from me. You know. And then one day I'm dressing funny and giving talks to people. And, you know. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Do you have a question?
1: I'm- you mentioned something about when you're in a, in a place and then you don't like your surroundings. Mm-hmm. It, it changes because of the way you view things. That's what I understood. But
0: well, that's one way to do it. But it also changes because everything changes. How? so? How?
1: Yeah. Or or it's something that that person does. Or it
0: can be. Set. We can create conditions necessary for change to happen. Most of the time we can't directly go after the change because it's out of our control. It takes 10,000 things for anything to change. And we're just one of the contributing factors of those 10,000 things. But we can create conditions for stuff to happen. So for instance, if I wanted to become enlightened, I need to create the conditions necessary for enlightenment to happen. Not just simply say, I'm gonna be enlightened. So what I need to do is I need to have a meditation practice, I need to study the Dharma. I need to find people who are more advanced than I am so I get an idea of the direction I'm going in. And I'm putting all these conditions together, and then one day when I've got the right combination, bang. But it only happens one time. So the irony of a spiritual path is sometimes you'll have epiphany moments when you'll, you'll see deeply into the true nature of reality. And then for the next three years, you're trying to do the same thing again. And it doesn't work. You can never do the same thing again. You always have to do something else that might be similar. So you can see, if that's the case, how things could change. Now, if you stay in a place long enough, people die, people come and go, the garden changes, they decide to paint the outside, put new windows in, maybe central heating, blah, 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 blah. You keep showing up like you always have, but your whole environment is evolving and changing and turning into something else. So that's what I meant by that.
1: Okay, I, I was—I just have to be more specific. And because I do sort of those things with, you know, the things that I would like to obtain or accomplish. But for example, it's when you talked about the neighbors and <laughs> house. You know, you bought this home. You're so happy. You're so like, this is it. I love my place. And then all of a sudden...
0: <laughs> Always. A
1: lot of stealing starts going on at your house. And you're like, what am I going to do now? I mean, I can't change the whole neighborhood. And what am I going to do? I, I'm not going to move either because this is it. <laughs> this is where I live for right now. I'm not in a position to, you know, sell the house and move somewhere else. But how do you change neighborhoods to be at
0: peace at your own place? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think the answer would be that you change yourself. That if you have a group of friends, and if you say to yourself, if only these friends were just a little different, they would be the perfect friends. Maybe I can change them all so they'll fit my image of who they should be. And of course, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to do that. Um, but it would be much simpler to say, why don't I like them? What part of me do I see in them that creates this uncomfortable feeling? Because generally speaking, all the people in our life are just mirrors reflecting us back to ourselves. So you're in the neighborhood, and you've got a house, and all of a sudden things start missing, and you say, what am I going to do? How am I going to change the neighborhood? Well... You probably can't. You know, I live in a house that was built in 1905. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many people lived, died, and were born in this house? Hundreds, probably, you know. So in each house, in each neighborhood, there's a big turnover all the time. And if it's a temporary situation, well, we, you know, we get ADT. I mean, they break into the White House, too. So you get, you know, you, you get you know, some safeguards set up, and you lock your doors, and you pay more attention, but all the while realizing it's just a matter of time until that changes, too. It's going to get either worse, or it's going to get better. Not going to stay the same. Hopefully for you, it won't get worse. But I live in Koreatown, and I've lived there now for over 20 years, and, and the whole neighborhood is going through uh, gentrification now, if you will, that the businesses, buildings, condos, restaurants, you know, all these things are starting to happen now that haven't happened in 20 years. Because of that, unfortunately, a lot of the lower class people who don't have the money have to move because everything's getting more and more expensive because the money's moving in. And it happened in Brooklyn, it happens all over the place. So, can we live in one place forever and ever? You know, I, I don't know. I doubt it. And would it be advantageous for us? I don't think so. You know, for a while I went to a military school, my high school years. And, and I joined the Alumni Association for this military school a couple years ago, and they send out a list of all the, you know, graduates and people who went there and, and what they're doing, you know, or, you know, what they did. Now some of my age are retired. And, and, and I remember some of these people as being really smart, really cool. It was high school, though. So, you know, I mean, what's really smart and really cool in high school may not translate into the world later. And, and a lot of these people ended up you know, like warehouse manager. And I'm thinking, that guy had so much potential. Why did he end up being a warehouse manager and raising a family and, and having a good life like that? And then it dawned on me why a lot of these people didn't live up to their realization that they could have had was the fact that they didn't move. They stayed in the same community, they didn't want to leave their friends and family, and they took what was available to make a living. So if they had moved to the East Coast or the West Coast and, and, and had all of this, but then they would have to leave all that behind. So. These are choices we make along our journey. Do I stay because I feel comfortable and these are where my friends are? Or do I move because there's more opportunity and it might be better for me in the long run, but no guarantee. So I've lived in a couple different places and the best thing my family ever did was to move. Because each community I moved into, I had to figure out how it worked. I had to start looking at it in a different way. And when I look at the religions... Sometimes moving from one religion to the next is the best thing you can do because it wasn't working for you. Even if all your family members and everybody you knew were this religion, it may not work for you. And so it didn't work for me and I struck out on my own to find a religion that would and I did. And now you might say, well, how does your family feel about it? They could care less. We never talk about religion. You know, Because it's for me. It's for me. It's not for them. And so some of my family members are non-religious. Some are Catholic. Some are Lutheran. And as long as it's working for them, I'm happy for them. You know? They aren't necessarily happy for me. But that's okay. (laughs) That's what they got to work out. Thanks for the question. I hope the answer wasn't too long. (laughs) No, No, okay. Did you bring your harmonica? I did. Would you like to hear a little harmonica? We would. Okay. I, I've got it right here. I've uh, got a couple of them, actually. Did you
1: have to give grades at UCLA?
0: No. No. The only time... Because I, I, I was a volunteer. I was part of the uh, uh, University Religious Conference. So I was an on-campus sort of minister guy. Okay. And then we started a Buddhist club. So there no, there's no grades for the Buddhist club. The only time I've ever had to give grades is when I was giving extension classes at Loyola Marymount University. And I was teaching like the Eightfold Path or Basic Buddhism. So I gave grades. Everybody got an A. It worked out fine with me.